0: Good evening, and welcome to Ideas. I'm Paul Kennedy. Four years ago on Ideas, David Cayley presented a series of 10 programs called Prison and Its Alternatives. The series looked at the increasing numbers of people in jail, notably in the United States, but also in Canada, and then at ways of reducing the jail population by adopting a vision of justice centered on peacemaking, rather than punishment. Since the time of these broadcasts, many of the alternatives David Cayley examined have coalesced under the name of restorative justice. A number of provinces have adopted restorative justice programs. The RCMP has begun to promote the diversion of many young offenders from court to community justice forums, in which the offender, the victim, and concerned community members try to resolve the problems created by criminal offenses. The Supreme Court has endorsed the idea of restorative justice, and so have a number of lower court judges. In essence, the idea has gotten around that restorative justice provides an answer to prison growth, to the concerns of victims, and to the general lack of public confidence in the existing system of criminal justice. Tonight, we continue a new series by David Cayley, which examines some of the questions that have been raised by the currency and momentum this new approach has achieved. Tonight's program looks at the rationales for punishment in our existing system of criminal justice. And it asks whether it is possible and whether it is desirable for a society to try to transcend these rationales. To hurt or to heal, part three. By David Cayley.
1: During recent years, the part governments play in the regulation of society has steadily diminished in almost every area of public life. But there's one striking exception, the criminal justice system. As the state has retreated, and as society has grown stranger and more chaotic, the criminal law has become a magnet for public demands for justice, order, and personal security. University of Toronto law professor Kent Roach has examined the heightened social significance of the criminal justice system in a new book called Due Process and Victim's Rights, The New Law and Politics of Criminal Justice. In this book, he claims that properly social concerns are increasingly being displaced into the criminal courts, a process he calls the criminalization of politics.
2: The criminalization of politics occurs when we use criminal justice policy to play out social, economic, cultural tensions in society. I think it's a process that is made easier as the state retracts in a lot of areas Then the criminal justice state is still there. I mean, we certainly haven't retracted in those areas. And it's uh, turning away from political and cultural and economic questions to uh, and seeing it through the lens of criminal justice.
1: Viewing social conflict through the lens of criminal justice exemplifies what Kent Roach calls the new political case. When he was a law student, he says, what most deeply interested him and his teachers were due process rights, cases which pitted the rights and freedoms of the individual against the state's potentially abusive interest in crime control. But as a teacher of law in the 90s, he noticed that what now most exercised his students and colleagues were cases in which the state had become a champion, called on to vindicate and protect the rights of victims. A current example is the controversy surrounding Robert Latimer's mercy killing of his disabled daughter, a case in which the rights of the disabled are seen to hinge on the length of Mr. Latimer's sentence, and one in which Kent Roach recently appeared before the Supreme Court. Such cases, Roach says, typify the new paradigm of criminal justice.
2: I gradually just reached the conclusion that all of the cases that got us excited as citizens and as academics now didn't fit. The old paradigm, and it was this new paradigm. So that, yes, the state's still involved, the individual's still involved, but there are these new concerns about victims and potential victims of crime, whether it's the Latimer case, um, the concerns of the disabled community, whether it's um, the concerns of women, whether it's police shootings in Montreal and Toronto and other places, and the concerns of African Canadians whether it's um, the concerns of gays and lesbians about hate crimes. These are all, to my way of thinking, examples of the new political case. And this feeds in to the criminalization of politics, I think, in some very interesting ways. Because what it means is that many of the most progressive elements in civil society, women's groups, groups representing the disabled uh, gay and lesbian groups, often in these cases quite literally line up behind the crown. Right? I mean, I tend to think of these things through the architecture of the courtroom and particularly the, the Supreme Court. So when we argue Latimer, I'm going to line up one desk behind Mr. Latimer and his counsel. Groups representing the disabled are going to line up one desk behind the crown attorney. And how this fits in, I think, to the criminalization of politics is that many groups are, I think because of circumstances, focusing on the criminal sanction as the good that the state is going to provide them. So so much feminist energy in the 90s was devoted to the issue of sexual assault law reform. That may very well from... Their perspective have been a defensive battle, but I think it's undeniable that that took up an awful lot of of energy in the 1990s and had some gains. But the gains are the passage of amendments to the criminal code. The gains are not necessarily a greater sensitivity towards uh, violence against women. It isn't daycare. It isn't a more egalitarian society. It is reforms to the criminal law that, at the end of the day, make it easier to lock up people. Locking people up,
1: in Kent Roach's view, does little or nothing for the aggrieved groups who are demanding this mainly symbolic vindication of their dignity and standing in society. There's a lot of evidence that punishment doesn't deter crime, and little reason to think that making Robert Latimer serve 10 years without parole in Prince Albert Penitentiary will otherwise improve the situation of the disabled. Seeking a way out of this dilemma, Kent Roach came to the conclusion that the solution lay in restorative justice.
2: I found restorative justice to be refreshing as opposed to kind of punitive policies where the focus is, is on applying the criminal sanction, making it perhaps easier to apply and punishing people. Because restorative justice provided a road away from simply focusing on issues of crime and a road back to these social and economic and cultural issues. So I see restorative justice as the one justice paradigm that can resist the criminalization of politics.
1: Restorative justice appeals to Kent Roach as a possible way out of the current preoccupation with punishment, a way of enlarging the context of justice and reintroducing the social questions that he thinks have been sidelined by criminalized politics. But recently, he says, he's begun to wonder whether restorative justice is being co-opted as it enters the mainstream and becomes part of the rhetoric of criminal justice. The Supreme Court, for example, has recognized restorative justice, but has treated it not as a new way of looking at crime, but as part of the continuum of punishment.
2: I'm a little bit worried that we are going to punish people for their own good. We're going to call it restorative justice, but we're going to forget the fact that we are imposing coercion on those people. When the Supreme Court talks about restorative justice, they're talking about conditions that will be attached to a sentence that may be longer than if you've gone to jail. And if you breach those conditions, the court is now saying you will go back to jail for the duration. So I worry about conditions being attached upon people, don't drink alcohol, don't possess alcohol, attend this very intensive treatment program. All of these things will be called restorative by the courts. But when people can't live by them when there's always these false starts and failures as you try to achieve restorative justice because the ambitions are so great. And I worry that when courts call it restorative, they're going to forget that at the end of the day, they're still punishing people. This growing confusion
1: between restoration and punishment is evident to Kent Roach in the way the Supreme Court has interpreted the so-called conditional sentence. This was a provision added to the criminal code in 1996. It allows prison sentences of less than two years to be served in the community when the judge sees fit and public safety is not a concern. The Supreme Court has called the conditional sentence a restorative sanction. But there is nothing inherently restorative, Kent Roach says, about simply confining someone to their house
2: conditional sentences, there's this, you know, fixation with house arrest and curfews. And that is all about, you know, sending people into their homes and isolating them. I mean, my understanding of what restorative justice is, is about is partly getting people out into the community where they, you know, sometimes face some very uncomfortable questions as they deal with the consequences of what they have done, both for the victim, obviously, but those people who love and support the victim and for people who love and support the offender. But right now, the courts will call an atomizing, isolating condition of house arrest, they will call that restorative. But it just seems that the court doesn't have the tools to consider these more robust and participatory forms of restorative justice. So what we do is we focus on the offender and we tell the offender to go to their room for a long time. But that, you know, may not do very much for the offender and certainly doesn't do anything for the victim. And so, you know, to go back to what we were talking about in terms of criminalized politics, I mean, restorative justice may play into that if it leads to these atomistic conditions. Go to your room. We'll put a monitor on you. You know, return home the minute work is done. And it gives preference for offenders who have the savings to be able to make payments to victims.
1: The idea that monetary reparations or conditional sentences are in themselves restorative encapsulates the danger involved in trying to incorporate restorative justice within the existing punitive institutions. What you end up with is neither fish, flesh, nor fowl, just a lukewarm punishment that displeases victims' groups and gets mocked by its opponents as a get-out-of-jail-free card while, on the other hand, also failing to realize the healing promise of restorative justice. Kent Roach supports restorative justice, but fears that if the courts adopt only the rhetoric and not the substance of restorative justice, an originally robust and promising idea will be denatured. Other legal scholars see the idea itself as flawed. One such skeptic is Julian Roberts, a professor of criminology at the University of Ottawa and an expert on sentencing law. He thinks that restoration and reconciliation are entirely worthy goals, but he is not sure that they can be harmonized with the fundamental purposes
3: of the criminal justice system. Justice, to me, involves the expression of censure, of acts or behavior of which we disapprove. The act of sentencing an offender for a serious crime is an act of expressing our disapproval of that conduct and we use the criminal law and specifically the sentencing process to do that. That said, that's something quite different from reconciling the offender to his or her victim and reinstating and reintegrating him into the community. That has to be done too, and I think all those people want to do it, the victim, the offender, and the community. But there's still this notion of justice which requires society to express its denunciation of certain conduct and to measure its response in relation to the seriousness of the harm inflicted or caused. And that means that the principle of proportionality is critical to the notion of justice, but not to the notion of restoration or restorative initiatives.
1: To Julian Roberts, justice demands punishment that is proportional to the harm done. Restorative goals, on the other hand, are accomplished when the offender makes amends, the victim is consoled, and the community satisfied. The two notions to him are quite different. Victims of identical crimes, for example, might demand dramatically different resolutions of the offense against them. The demand for restoration could be said to be satisfied in either case, But from a broader social perspective, Roberts argues, the disproportion between the settlements would still be perceived as a failure of justice.
3: Most people believe or feel um, viscerally almost shock when they learn that a serious crime of violence has resulted in what they consider to be an inappropriate penalty. There's a general principle, I think, in our uh, society that positive Behaviour should be rewarded and negative behaviour punished. And people who are promoted without merit provoke resentment. People who are punished too much cause us difficulties. This whole notion of proportional responding, I think, is central to most people's conceptions of justice at the present. And a system of justice which abandoned proportionality would be a system of justice at odds with the general community. One of Julian Roberts' main concerns as
1: a criminologist has been with what are called sentencing disparities. These occur when different sentences are given for similar offenses, and they're common in Canada, where our judges have wide discretion in sentencing. In the 1980s, when Roberts worked as a researcher for the Canadian Sentencing Commission, sentencing disparity was considered a critical problem in the administration of justice. But the recent vogue for restorative justice, he says, has tended to displace this problem from the agenda of justice reform.
3: I think that's a problem which we don't talk about very much anymore. Restorative justice movement, for example, people who advocate that approach are not particularly worried about disparity of treatment in the pursuit of reconciliation or in the pursuit of a restorative initiative, they're willing to tolerate uh, great variation in the treatment of people convicted of crimes. And I think it's dangerous because one of the central principles of any justice system must be that offenders be treated equally and fairly, and in order to have that, you need standards. Julian Roberts' argument here
1: can be seen as almost exactly opposite to the one Kent Roach made earlier. Roach argued that it is fruitless to try to solve social problems by punishing individuals, and he proposed a form of restorative justice that would allow social problems to be addressed in the justice setting. Roberts believes that justice should address wrongful acts and refrain from trying to
3: diagnose or remedy their cause. You're trying to use the sentencing process to rectify problems in society. We criticize the sentencing process and judges when they try and deter people by imposing harsh sentences. Because the solution to crime is not to be found in ever-increasing severity. We know that. But on the same token, the sentencing process cannot rectify social inequity. And we shouldn't expect it to try. So the problems that give rise to the high rates of Aboriginal offending, which give rise to the high rates of Aboriginal convictions and imprisonment, need to be addressed. But don't expect provincial court judges to play much of a role in rectifying social inequality.
1: Criminal justice, for Julian Roberts, is a strictly limited enterprise which ought not to be expected to improve society. Using it for purposes for which it is not apt will only jeopardize its fundamental purpose as a social institution, to demonstrate to the citizenry that their actions will have the consequences these actions deserve. A related argument has recently been put forward by law professor David Pachaco in a book called Getting Away with Murder. David Pachaco has been both a prosecutor and a defense lawyer, and is now a colleague of Julian Roberts at the University of Ottawa. He believes that the criminal justice system's irreducible and indispensable function is to punish and that the best way to limit this destructive function is to be honest about it. Instead, he says, the criminal justice system has claimed it can do much more, restorative justice being only the latest wrinkle in this attempt to portray itself as a productive institution. For example, there is a widespread belief fostered both by politicians and by the criminal code that the criminal justice system can deter crime.
4: But this belief, David Pachaco says, has little foundation. The ability to deter conduct depends on the certainty of being caught and the swiftness of punishment. We know that crime statistics demonstrate that the prospect of getting caught for almost any offence other than murder is almost negligible. The prospect of being dealt with swiftly by the courts is very, very small. So, automatically, the requirements that a criminologist would identify for effective deterrence are not there in the system that we have for a whole host of reasons we can do nothing about. And then you add to that the nature of the crimes that we really are concerned about. They tend to be crimes that are committed by people in the throes of emotion, desperation, individuals who are self-destructive. You look at most of the robberies that occur, they're not sophisticated uh, gang robberies with Uh, a a stopwatch. There are people who've wandered into a pharmacy to steal drugs or go into the corner store because they need their fix. They're, They're desperate people. Many, if not most, of the crimes that truly trouble us are crimes committed by addicted individuals or people who feel they have very little to lose or who aren't exactly in a position to sit back and do the kind of economic calculation that deterrence presupposes. So looking at it critically, but I think realistically, I think we overestimate dramatically the extent to which we can control crime through punishment. This overestimation, to David Pachaco's
1: mind, has very destructive consequences. Politicians undertake futile reforms in the belief that harsher penalties will deter crime. And the public, conditioned by the same unrealistic expectations, comes
4: to believe that the system is falling down on the job. If we're constantly telling the public that we're going to reduce crime by punishing, a couple of things happen. First of all, we're going to invariably fail in accomplishing that. And so the system's going to look like it's failing, and it's going to encourage reform. And not the kind of constructive reform you like to see, but the knee-jerk reaction that can cause a lot of pain and suffering within the system. Uh, And the other thing is that uh, we tend not to look for alternative ways of dealing with crime it's the easiest thing in the world for a politician to say i'm going to help control crime and protect canadians and come in and try and increase sentences because it's inexpensive in relative terms and they look like something is being done and they're they're answering the need Uh, you know we talk about the war on drugs when was the last time you heard about a war on addiction or a war on poverty we don't try to deal with the things that we know to cause crime we try to act after the offense has occurred And I think that that, too, brings discredit to the system. The criminal justice system is discredited, David
1: Pichako argues, when its purpose is misunderstood. This purpose, to him, is primarily an expressive one. The business of justice is not to deter crime or relieve distress, but to announce certain standards.
4: The criminal justice system just isn't, as Justice Lemaire said, a system of negative penalties designed to discourage crime. It is, at bottom, a system of values. And I think that the people of Canada, as in many other cultures, expect a consequence, expect accountability, when there's been a violation of some basic norm within the society. And for the very serious crimes, the ones that cry out for denunciation... The best we've been able to manage so far in demonstrating our disapproval is, in fact, punishment. And we are very, very reluctant as a society and as a legal culture to talk about punishment. Some people become very offended when you even use the word punishment. It's why we talk about sentencing as though it can somehow be a more productive and euphemistic way of describing the infliction of pain. We're very loath to admit that we punish. This squeamishness
1: according to David Pachaco, causes us to look away from the real nature of the criminal trial. To him, it's not about deterring or rehabilitating offenders. It's a solemn and majestic ceremony intended above all to communicate a message about what's right and what's wrong. And this being so, what is most critical to its success is that the message be clear and unequivocal. But as things are, David Pachaco says, the law contains all sorts of claims and devices which muddy this purpose. An example, for him, is the current system of
4: parole and
1: statutory release.
4: As you know, offenders who are sentenced to incarceration rarely serve the entire period of their sentence. They will be eligible for parole normally after one-third of their sentence is served. Now, they can apply for parole. That doesn't mean they're going to get out. And in fact, most requests for parole are denied. And then after you've served two-thirds of your sentence, if you've not been paroled, you're entitled to statutory release unless you're somebody who poses a serious risk of serious offenses to society. So the overwhelming majority of the people we incarcerate for 10 years don't serve 10 years. They may serve three and a half to seven years in, in all likelihood. Now, the point is when judges sentence someone to incarceration, They do not sentence them there to rehabilitate them because we all within the system understand how difficult it is to take someone, put them into a milieu where they're exposed to uh, other criminals and organizations within the institution that, that thrive on crime, and expect them to somehow become better citizens. You know, we're pulling them out of the opportunities that they should have to learn how to cope better within society and and hiving them off and sticking them somewhere. So we don't send them there to to make them better people. Most judges, when they sentence, will tell you one of three things. When When they send someone to jail, they'll tell you that they're sending them there for the purposes of general deterrence, sending a strong message to other possible offenders, or they're going to tell you that they're sending them there to denounce their conduct. What you did is so outrageous that it requires a sentence of 10 years in jail. Or we send them there to incapacitate them, to get them off the streets so that they don't hurt other citizens. That's the justice system. But the parole system, the system that administers the sentence, uses entirely different criteria in deciding whether to release offenders. The parole system doesn't ask, should we keep this person in here to send a strong message? Should we keep this person in here to deter the public from committing these kinds of offenses? They ask, Does this person continue to pose a danger to the public? The reality is many of the people we send to jail have never posed a danger to the public from day one. In many domestic homicide cases, for example, uh, this was uh, an isolated aberration with horrible calamitous consequences. But we know from statistics that those who commit this form of offense are least likely to commit another offense when they're released. But we don't send them there to rehabilitate them. So we have our systems working at cross-purposes, and the problem I have is, again, one of credibility. I think that it is a pious fraud to have this open ceremony in court where you make the offender stand up and you declare solemnly that that person's going to jail for 10 years when everybody in the system knows that person's in all certainty not gonna spend 10 years in jail. And then they go into this black box of parole and statutory release where very few people understand the rules and where they ultimately are going to be judged on a totally different foundation.
1: David Pachaco recognizes that real-time sentences would have to be shorter than current sentences in the interests of both fairness and economy. But it's not more punishment that he's advocating. It's more transparency about punishment. He thinks, in fact, that we might have a leaner, less punitive system if only we were clearer about its purpose. Nor is he opposed to restorative justice as a way of possibly reducing the burden on the system and dealing with minor social conflicts in a less hostile way. But what he does fear about the current enthusiasm for restorative justice is the way in which he thinks this philosophy is now encroaching on the main business of the criminal justice system. An example for him is the changing relationship between crown prosecutors and the victims of crime
4: in our system a prosecutor represents the state the prosecutor is not the victim's lawyer and there are lots of reasons for that the prosecutor has the power to do tremendous harm to the accused the prosecutor gets to decide what charges will proceed whether to proceed with charges what procedures will be used what decisions will be taken about pleas of guilty and 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 positions that will take on sentence we were always taught that those decisions have to be made based on the public interest because the criminal process is there for the interests of the public. And prosecutors are taught that they're not there to win the case, they're there to see that justice is done, so that they should be looking out for the interests of the accused as well as everyone else's interests, including the interests of the complainant and that has always been the paradigm and it is based on the idea about the power that the criminal process has and about the risk of convicting the innocent now we're seeing many prosecutors who have come to conceive of themselves in one way or another as the victim's lawyer i've heard prosecutors tell me that they will let a case go forward to the jury that they could have settled just because they want the judge or jury to make the decision because that's what the victim wants or that's what the complainant wants or they make decisions about plea bargains based on what is the victim going to say? What is this group that is supporting the victim going to think? And I think we've got to be very, very careful there. Because what we've done is we've taken a state-funded apparatus that does harm to individuals and we're co-opting it in the interests of individuals who, who are more, most closely identified with the crime. Now, in a pure restorative justice model, that's entirely fine because you you want the people most affected to have the biggest say in what happens. And so if you just had a situation where everybody sat down and worked out their problems and you didn't have the punishment and stigma at the end of it, I'd say that's fine. But we've taken that same model and we're melting it into the criminal justice process in a way that I think produces bad results. This melting, in David Pachaco's
1: view, could, in the end, produce more punishment. To him, the best defense against abuse of this most damaging of the state's powers is to look punishment in the eye and face the fact that it means returning pain for pain. Because recognizing punishment as intended pain, he says finally, is the surest foundation for the demand that it be just.
4: We all want to be decent people, I would much rather be here uh, advocating the archetype of uh, forgiveness and, uh, and rehabilitation and, uh, and rebirth and renewal than to be the spokesperson for punishment, because punishment has that sense to it, that it, it is uh, a negative, damaging thing. And I agree it's negative and damaging. And the reason I want to be a spokesperson for punishment is because our criminal justice system is damaging and it's the realization that it's damaging that makes us kinder, makes us concerned about due process, makes us concerned about not having people get huge sentences, uh, makes us want to uh, to make sure before we convict someone that they're absolutely guilty and I'm concerned that if we conceive of the criminal justice system as this great productive social mechanism that does good and forget the harm it does, we're going to become cavalier about how we use it.
0: You're listening to Ideas. I'm Paul Kennedy, and our program tonight is called To Hurt or To Heal. It's presented by David Cayley.
1: Punishment, according to David Pachaco, is administered for the edification and benefit of society as a whole. It embodies a social interest that transcends the particular interests of both the victim and the offender. Justice, on this view, is an ideal which the courts uphold, an order which they project. It's a message to the citizens that their actions will have reliable and predictable consequences. But one of the central arguments of the restorative justice philosophy is that justice must also be an experience, something that actually happens to the persons caught up in a crime. And it is to this experience that I want to turn in the remainder of tonight's program. Who are the people whose imprisonment sends a message to society? What happens to them in our provincial courts? Our destination is the Metro East Courts in Scarborough, Ontario, now part of the city of Toronto. Our guide is David Cole, an Ontario Provincial Court judge. David Cole was called to the bar in 1975, and early in his career was one of the handful of Canadian lawyers who represented prisoners and argued for prisoners' rights. Cole for parole, I've heard, was once a watchword in Ontario penitentiaries. In 1991, he became a judge. This is the scene in which he now does justice.
5: Before they amalgamated the city, Scarborough was a city of 600,000. We have uh, a third of Metro's public housing. And unfortunately, uh, in the way uh, police practices are structured, the police go after poor people who tend to commit their crimes in public spaces, And when you get public housing, you get an awful lot of that. Scarborough is a very poor community in large measure. We have about 55% of families in Scarborough are single parent. We have among the youngest families in Toronto. We have huge numbers of uh, refugee claimants. That's not to make a linkage between uh, immigrants and crime, but refugee claimants by and large aren't allowed to work. And so uh, because of that, some of them tend to get involved in crime. So it's a very challenging uh, area to work in. We have 10 judges, two of whom do family work, and the remainder of us do criminal. Doing criminal
1: involves processing an astonishingly large number of cases. At his invitation, I recently spent a day in Judge Cole's courtroom. And that day, the docket contained the names of 21 people some of them facing up to 10 charges. These ranged all the way from forcible confinement and assault with a weapon to the theft of a bottle of eye drops. For Judge Cole, it was a fairly typical day.
5: Last year, I processed, according to the statisticians, somewhere around 2,400 cases. Now, if I'm in the plea court, I will, uh, on average, take about 12 pleas a day the average sentencing hearing in those 12 cases that i take probably lasts less than one minute either it's a plea bargain or if it's not a plea bargain i'm usually asked to choose between a and b the lawyers frame the issues and say is this to be a 500 dollars fine or a thousand dollar fine is this to be five days in jail or 15 days in jail those are the vast majority of the cases that I deal with. It's just processing, processing, processing bodies. Most of the time, I don't even look at the offender. I just run them through. It is well known that we don't put certain judges in certain courts. If you put Judge X in the plea court, the guilty pleas won't follow. The lawyers will find a way to get around those cases until Judge Y gets in there. And Judge Y will then get all those guilty pleas, which might have gone in there if Judge X wasn't there. So we respond to that by not putting certain judges in there. We have two or three lawyers who are regulars in our court who know absolutely, they know better than I do what I will do. This is what criminal lawyers talk about, the defense counsel. Over coffee, over lunch, when they meet one another in the jails and they're waiting for their clients to come up, they, their stock and trade is, "Hey, what does Judge? Have you ever seen what Judge Cole does on a domestic? Is it true that Judge Smith's sentence has gone up? I hear his house got broken into." This is the kind of stock and trade they have. So some of our lawyers, some of our regulars in our court, know exactly what we're going to do even before we will. That's reality. The defense lawyers and the crowns also know that with that volume of cases, they have to make absurdly low plea bargains. I had a case yesterday in which a, uh, there was a theft of a dog, and the lady whose dog was stolen, she suspected who had taken the dog. She ran a kennel, and she suspected who had broken into the kennel and take, taken the dog. She went to the house, demanded and she got punched in the face she broke her nose. She's 75 years old. She's not, so the Crown told me, she's not a great witness. And the prosecutor, in order to get a guilty plea, withdrew an obvious charge of assault causing bodily harm where a nose was broken, and accepted a guilty plea, or indicated a willingness to accept a guilty plea to simple assault for a non-custodial disposition in the hope of getting something rather than, A, tying up the courts for a day and a half with interpreters in two different languages and unrepresented accused while we tried the great dog theft and also was worried about whether or not he would get a conviction at the end of the day. So he offered a deal which the defense was all too happy to accept. We got a new colleague out in Scarborough a few months ago, and I said to her, well, I see they gave you your robes. Did they give you the clothes peg yet? And she said, what do you mean the clothes peg? And I said, the clothes peg you're going to have to put on the end of your nose to go along with some of these plea bargains. That's a description of a reality. That's a description of too much volume. That's a description of why a lot of people, a lot of victims, are very upset with our justice system because there isn't the time to deal with their cases properly. It's why accused feel pushed around by our justice system. The volume
1: of cases that speed along the assembly line of the Metro East courts has considerable relevance to our present concern with restorative justice. It indicates, first of all, the sheer magnitude of the task at hand, and it shows how little room there is in the current system for thoughts of restoration. Restorative justice is an intensive and demanding process. Whether it's a sentencing circle, a victim-offender mediation, a community conference, considerable time and resources are necessary for a form of justice which tries to patiently attend to what has happened and then to discover what can be done about it. Neither the time nor the resources are currently available in settings like Scarborough. This is particularly evident when it comes to sentencing. From the point of view of those who come before the courts, their sentence is what matters most. It determines what's going to happen to them. Yet sentencing is not a priority in the workaday world of the lower courts. David Cole, who has co-edited two books on sentencing, says that the extent of the problem was driven home to him when he served for three years in the mid-90s as co-chair of the Commission on Systemic Racism in the Ontario criminal justice system.
5: When I and my co-commissioners went around the province listening to people talk about systemic racism, I heard, and it was a revelation to me, I heard wherever we went, complaints and criticisms that the lawyer whom, and we're talking principally black people, had usually retained through legal aid, the lawyer didn't care. The lawyer didn't take the time. The lawyer just seemed interested in pleading me guilty and getting it over with so he could get on to the next case. And I listen very carefully to this, and, and when you hear the same thing said by several hundred people in different, who don't know one another in different parts of the province, you begin to say, look, there's got to be some truth to this.
1: Sentencing is neglected, in David Cole's view, for several reasons. Time taken over a sentencing plan is not paid for by cash-strapped legal aid plans. The subject is given only scant attention in law schools. And often, he says, it's not of great interest to lawyers.
5: A lot of lawyers don't believe that speaking to sentence is a a lawyerly thing to do. I mean, Perry Mason never spoke to sentence. And I think a lot of lawyers don't do that, certainly in the work I used to do in, in terms of uh, imprisonment and release issues. When I would talk to the clients who had usually been dealt with by another lawyer for their trials the lawyers had told them things that were horrendously wrong about what would happen to them. But that, unfortunately, one suspects, was all too often used to get the client to buy into a plea arrangement. No, I, What the, the reality is, although there's some darn good lawyers out there trying their best and trying their hardest, I think that the main problem is that, that they're not adequately reimbursed to really go into providing really good sentencing packages. By and large, the good sentencing plans I get either come from probation officers or come from lawyers who've got wealthy clients. And that's the problem, I think, that they're not properly compensated to do that work. They're, they don't get forced to take the education courses that they need to take. They forget what they learned in the bar admission course 20 years ago. They're not pushed by competition to do a better job because people don't want to represent the poor because the poor are legal aid. And legal aid rates, frankly, you've got to do a volume practice in order to survive. Now, I know that you know, the orthodox members of the Criminal Lawyers Association, the Canadian Bar, will not like what I'm saying. But I unfortunately see in a court which deals with lots and lots of poor people, I see a lawful lot of bad lawyering. David Cole's criticisms
1: of defense lawyers also extend to the Crown attorneys who prosecute the cases that come before him. They also generally fail, he says, to provide him with constructive plans for dealing with offenders.
5: I find that that Crown submissions on sentence, by and large, are rote. I can predict what the Crown is going to say in most cases. They're going to stand up and say, General Deterrence demands that you lock this person up. Oh, really? If I would fail to lock someone up for lying to a police officer because he doesn't have his license on him, hundreds of other people are going to do the same thing? But they believe this rhetoric or they, they mouth this rhetoric when all of the statistical evidence is that's not true. The crown just stands up and says, jail, jail, jail. 30 days. Failed to appear in court, 30 days. Lied to a police officer, 60 days. Without any understanding of how that impacts. All too often the Crown is more concerned to say, well, we advocated it, and you the judge, well, if you don't go along with it because you're a wuss, well, that's up to you. But we advocated, we protected our position. We're not gonna get criticized by the Toronto Sun. You can. So it's uncreative submissions on both sides.
1: Neglect of sentencing means that a lot of people end up in jail at considerable public expense For want of imaginative alternatives. David Cole has spent a lot of time inside prisons, and he's convinced that we send far too many people there unnecessarily. He was happy, consequently, when the government introduced conditional sentences in 1996. The conditional sentence, as was said earlier, allows judges to order that sentences of less than two years be served in the community, where there is no threat to public safety. Unhappily, Judge Cole says, this reform has foundered because no resources have been devoted to making it work or promoting it to a skeptical public. Another illustration of the problem he's been discussing. The result has been that judges, so far, have not used the conditional sentence as an alternative to imprisonment.
5: The conditional sentence has now been in for three and a half years, up to September 1999 when the federal government stopped tracking the data, it had made not one whit of difference to incarceration rates. What is happening is that judges are imposing the conditional sentence in circumstances where prior to the availability of that sentence, they would not have imposed incarceration at all. The best example generally is women. Women, prior to the conditional sentence regime, got incarcerated f- at about 10% the rate of men for the same types of offenses. Reasons for this. The Court of Appeal, for example, said on many occasions that a woman who, uh, who has kids, why do you bother to incarcerate her when, you know, all's going to happen is her kids are going to be taken into care and we're going to have to go through the societal expense of all of that, etc., etc. So the Court of Appeal said, you know, don't hit women too hard. Well, the number of women sentenced to jail under conditional sentences is now 27%, that of men. So those numbers have gone way up. What are the kinds of offenses for which, with which women are typically charged? Welfare fraud is one of them. Petty drugs, often to raise money to support their kids, and various kinds of frauds, of other frauds. Well, you know, in the preconditional sentence regime, we just weren't incarcerating women. But the conditional sentence... Has become a way of adding on that is probably in large measure unnecessary. The other problem, of course, is that the conditional sentence, I think, is not replacing incarceration because in a number of parts of the country, everybody knows that conditional sentences are not enforced. The conditional sentence, I'm supposed to sentence someone in the community and the, the appeal courts have said, normally there should be house arrest the Supreme Court has said you know house arrest should be tough it should be the person should be uh, seen to be uh, not going out of his house except for purposes of work or treatment or something like that all well and good well everybody knows that with the possible exception of Saskatchewan that I know about there are absolutely no resources dedicated to the supervision of conditional sentences the only way a conditional sentence supervisor is likely to find out whether or not somebody, says in breach of a curfew condition of a conditional sentence is if the police happen to arrest the person at 3 o'clock in the morning committing a new offense. They have no resources in place to randomly call and say, are you in your house? Why aren't you in your house? And the public knows that, and the judges know that. And I think that's one of the reasons that the judges are not using the conditional sentence as an alternative to incarceration.
1: David Cole is able to demonstrate convincingly that the conditional sentence has not generally been used as an alternative to imprisonment. But that hasn't prevented a public outcry against the exceptional cases in which it has been used in this way. The government of Ontario has vowed to have it abolished, and victims groups like Mothers Against Drunk Driving have also spoken out against it. This is a very unhappy parable of the fate of half-hearted reform, and a powerful illustration of the uphill road in front of those who dream of a restorative justice that gives every case the time, attention, and resources needed to resolve it in a constructive way. One can be grateful for judges like David Cole, who administer justice with probity and a sense of humor, while at the same time recognizing, as he does, that the system in which he works is a treadmill. As a society, he says, we are addicted to punishment. And so long as we are, that's where our
5: resources will go. We are putting money into police resources. We're putting money into arrest, detection, sentencing, and jailing. That's where our resources are. That's a series of decisions the politicians have made over the last few years. I think I can Say, because I think it's an accurate statement, that the politicians in this country of whatever stripe have trampled all over one another running to the right on law and order issues. There is almost no money anywhere in any substantive way for alternatives to what we've got now. If we wanted out in Scarborough to get a restorative justice coordinator, I would have absolutely no idea where we could get the salary dollars. Absolutely no idea.
0: On Ideas Tonight, you've listened to Part 3 of To Hurt or To Heal. Our five-part series on restorative justice will continue tomorrow night with a program about Aboriginal justice and justice for Aboriginals. Tonight's program was written, produced, and presented by David Cayley, with the assistance of Richard Handler. David Cayley is also the author of The Expanding Prison The Crisis in Crime and Punishment, and The Search for Alternatives, published by House of Anansi Press. Studio production was by David Field, associate producers Catherine Hughes and Liz Nage. You can get a printed transcript of this series for $25 or a set of five cassettes for $39.95. To order by credit card, call us at 416-205-7367. Or you can send a check to Ideas Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. The number for credit card orders once again is area code 416 205 Seven three six seven. The executive producer of Ideas is Richard Handler, and I'm Paul Kennedy. Coming up, the hourly news, then the arts today, and between the covers.